Hello, welcome to the University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman. This is the podcast which features discussions with academics and students from our university talking about what they do best and touching on how their expertise fits into what's going on in the world today. This week, my guest is Dr. Claire Woodford, Principal Lecturer in Political Philosophy in the Centre for Applied Philosophy, Politics and Ethics, or CAPI for short, an undergraduate degree leader for the course of the same name. She's also working on the new Philosophy and Politics MA course. Thanks for coming on, Claire. Uh, can we start by talking um, a little bit about your background, just where your interest stems from and, and the areas that you typically focus on? I would describe myself at the moment as a political philosopher or a political theorist. Um, and I started off by studying politics at um, an undergraduate level um, and as part of that degree studied some political theory and found that that was the stuff that interested me the most. Uh, there was a lot there to do with uh, political ideas, why we do what we do, um, how what we do today is shaped by the ideas that people have had in the past, often at completely different times and completely different contexts. And also learning that quite a lot of texts or discussions have been had um, where people have been faced by similar problems, if not the same to today, and may have come up with some fantastic possible solutions or partial solutions, uh, or also may have tried things out that we are currently trying out today and it didn't work. So um, I think just reading, I suppose, like the history of political thought, and reading the different ideas that people have come up with i was completely hooked and just thought there's so much in terms of a wealth of information here that we need to use to apply um, to the world today and i think also as well when i was studying political theory alongside politics um more more what we might call political science i was aware that some of the political science questions that we were looking at um, such as how to govern in a particular regime or state or how to organize our society, sometimes those conversations could be quite narrow or quite shallow in depth. Um, and often they, they would simply be drawing on, you know, what, what should we do today? And drawing on a very small group of ideas of possible different systems or models that a certain group of theorists had come up with maybe quite recently. And it's only when you get into the political theory and then the philosophizing behind that, the, the why are we doing it this way? How are we doing it? Um, should we do it in this way? that we start to think, if you like, excuse the phrase, outside the box, um, and, and start to realise that we don't need to be limited by just what people are telling us today is possible. And so there's a sense of how we can push the boundaries of stuff um, through political theory and actually then come back to the models and the, um, the formal, if you like, thinking in political science differently and challenge that and change it. Mm, great. Um, in, in a bit, I'll, I'll get your thoughts on some issues in, in politics today. We'll come to that in a bit. It'd be good to focus on the courses you teach on at the university first and your works generally at, at the university. Um, I guess politics is quite a unique course in that it focuses on something which is so sensitive. There are wide ranging views and, and leanings in just one room. Um, so, I mean, how, how do you make sure that it sort of caters for all, that it's, there are sort of, is a, is a space, I guess, for, for sort of free thinking? That's a fantastic question. Um, it is quite a delicate issue talking about politics, um, particularly like, you know, in the UK where we say we don't talk about politics, sex and religion. Suddenly when you're saying to people, we're going to talk about politics and we're just going to be talking about politics, um, people can feel a little bit like, oh, what can I say? Can I say what I actually think? Um, you know, and, and when people do say that, how do other people respond? 
but actually it's really exciting and I think it's incredibly important. I think in terms of the way in which we understand the world and the way we live, we do need to be thinking and talking about politics a lot more. Um, and I don't, I, I mean, when I'm mentioning the thinking here and thinking again about theory and ideas, I find it very difficult to separate politics from the theory. And at the moment at Brighton, where we have the um, PPE degree, the philosophy, politics and ethics degree, the idea is that we do not try and separate off theory from the political action, if you like, or political models today. Um, so when we've got people together in a seminar, or even in a lecture, people just wanting to, to raise questions, the important thing is that we create a kind of safe environment for people to feel they can raise questions. And there are going to be differences of opinion. It's actually very rare that there are very serious differences of opinion. That's very, very rare, not just where I teach at the moment at Brighton, I've taught in lots of other universities. Um, and it's, it's not really the case. I think people assume sometimes that's going to happen more than it does. But what is important is that we test our own assumptions. And quite a few students will often like to, where appropriate, play kind of devil's advocate and challenge themselves more even than challenging other people. Why is, I think we're sometimes in the kind of gut reaction instinct to that's not right or that could be right. And particularly if someone else says something that we really think is, is terrible or is wrong, it can be very hard to stop and go, well, why does that person think that? The first reaction is usually, no, they're wrong. That's awful. I don't want to listen to that. And there can be what we call quite a strong affective reaction. So it's kind of feelings, emotions. And I think the important thing when we're learning and studying types of ideas is to try to just make it safe so that we don't have really strong affective reactions of hatred or, or sort of passionate anger. And instead we can just say, well, look, if we can make that seminar environment a space in which we can try out ideas and start to say, why are people motivated to think what they think? Then we start to get to the reasons people are giving for the ideas they have. And of course, that's really important because if you want to persuade someone to think differently, there's no point just telling them they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, because then it becomes a battle of wills. And actually when we're working with our students and we're thinking about kind of public speaking, rhetoric, critical thinking, and the art of persuasion, we need to be stopping that wrong, you know, your wrong reaction and actually asking people to say, why does someone think that? And if I want to convince them differently, or if I need to be open to being convinced differently, then we all have to be willing to look at those underlying reasons and assumptions and willing to examine them. And what we want students to be able to do, and I think this is, this is the case when anyone's kind of teaching politics or, or the, the interconnections of politics and philosophy, is to feel that they are more secure when they have convictions, that they can back them up, that they can explain them to people and give reasons um, that aren't just emotive, um, but are perhaps still things that may, may inspire emotion. I'm not saying emotion is wrong, um, but that in that way, they're able to say, give rational reasons that can explain um, and persuade and also reflect those reasons that they give and to think, am I leaving anyone out? Am I being unequal? Am I being unjust? Am I just maybe trying to protect myself here and are willing to ask those difficult questions about themselves? So it's, in a way, it can be very much about asking questions of yourself, of others, but also an openness. And that's about creating a safe environment where we feel comfortable being open. And we also feel that people aren't gonna turn around and say, no, you're wrong. <laughs> and instead to say, why do you think that? I think uh, those are important, it's asking the questions. Yeah, I think that's um, it's interesting because I, I guess it's a very human sort of 
um, response to have uh, uh, you, you fall on one side of the divide. I mean, that would be the same for yourself, for your colleagues. Um, so how could, so I guess it's more sort of a reassurance, I guess, that um, those sort of views are not going to be imposed on, on, on a student. It's, it's, it's great to know that because you'd imagine that it's quite hard to stay neutral, but that's the, that's the job. That's a job for you. And I, I imagine some of the debates do get quite lively. Like you say, they don't um, spill over much, but um, I guess it is quite a difficult sort of balance for you to tread. Yeah, absolutely. It's not so much about staying neutral. It's about making sure that the focus is on the students. Sure. Um, so, you know, there's going to be times when you might say, oh, well, <laughs> you know, if a an opinion is raised that you feel is inappropriate or is going to upset people, you, you can't just say, you know, oh, everyone's allowed to have their opinions. If someone's clearly upset, someone's clearly upset. But it's important to be able to safely speak about that and resolve things. Um, and I think that's the important, the important art, I suppose, of being able to teach um, politics, philosophy and other subjects where controversial subject, uh, topics are going to be raised. It's being able to create a nice atmosphere in that seminar group and possibly have students who are able, they know each other, they, they, work, they work together quite a bit, build up a rapport. Um, and then feel comfortable working with each other. And I think if you can do that, you don't actually then have those difficult situations when someone just says something and, and everyone gets upset. Um, and so it is much more about that feeling of comfort and security and building up a rapport with students. So, you know, at Brighton, we try and keep our seminar groups really small, um, much, much smaller than some other universities and students who work together and build up a kind of community between them throughout the year rather than jumping from seminar group to seminar group and I think that is really important if we're going to be having meaningful discussions discussions where people can uncover things in their own ideas or in other people's ideas safely and in a respectful way um, and I think I think that's what it's all about so it's not so much neutrality as um, the security of being able to talk and think without people feeling threatened. Mm. From your experience, do you think that um, young people generally have become a lot more engaged and interested in politics? Have you seen that sort of trend? Is that, is, is that something that's changing? Yes, definitely. And I even experienced that um, whilst teaching um, politics and political theory at various universities, that there has become much more of a, an appetite to question and to consider alternatives right across the board and I think that's really inspiring and something that um, is I think really reassuring because although it means there's a lot of challenging and questioning on it also means there's lots of people coming up with ideas of how we can live differently and when students come to study uh, particularly subjects like PPE, philosophy, politics and ethics um, or just politics or philosophy um, they are wanting to ask not just about how we do things or how things have been done in the past, but how things can be done better and how things can be done better today and in the future. And it's so great seeing so many students now interested in um, change and wanting to also say no to certain things. So with climate change, um, you know, students now saying, no, actually we can't carry on as we have been. Something's got to give. And that's actually very inspiring because I think the first thing is to realize there's a problem even if it's very hard to come up with a solution, if enough people are committed to the fact there is an issue today, then we're going to be more likely to come up with solutions that work. And it's not just going to be one solution, is it? It's going to be multiple solutions. And the more people who are interested in this, the more ideas we've got and the more um, minds set to that task. So, mm. yeah, it's really inspiring. It's, I've definitely seen it in the last sort of 10 years. Mm. And it's, I think, a great wealth and a great richness that we've got that we can tap into. Because, of course, once all of these students graduate, 
they're going to go and contribute to um, developing new ideas in the different jobs that they do. And that's really, like I say, reassuring, um, but also inspiring. And you're also involved in the new philosophy and politics MA, as we said just, uh, just a little bit ago. Can you tell us a bit uh, more about that? Yeah, certainly. So this was an attempt to provide a focused MA on these two disciplines, but one that develops students, whether they come to us from their undergraduate degree, a similar sort of subject degree, or whether they're coming from other subjects. And we've had lots of interest from right, um, all, all different types of people who are, say, studying business or economics undergraduate or philosophy or politics or the two together or history or whatever, you know, all different subjects. And the idea is to be able to drill down a bit more into the subjects of, um, in, in many ways, it's politics and philosophy together. It's looking at them, maybe turning them around a little bit, maybe being a bit more political at times, a bit more philosophical at times, but looking at the conjunction, if you like, of ideas and applying them to the world um, and allowing students to get more into those disciplines whilst also thinking about how to apply them to the key problems of today. And so we're quite inspired by the current, I mean, it's, it's bizarre at the moment to be able to talk about a time when there are multiple crises, um, but there do seem to be in terms of when people are commenting um, on the political situations today. So we've got like environmental crisis, we've got economic crisis, we've got the coronavirus health crisis. Um, you know, you can kind of go on and on with this. Um, and what we want to do is we want to be getting students to not, not necessarily step away from the world in order to come and study, but to use their study and use their knowledge and apply that to the problems of today. And we want to do that in a way that supports these students as well to get jobs in future, to be employable. So we're looking at employability skills. Um, we're supporting students with a placement option, um, which they've got access to, um, to maybe, maybe go and work in a related um, uh, area to what they're interested in but also we've got some developmental stuff for students who want to stay in academia beyond doing an MA and maybe want to stay on and do a PhD so we've got some stuff to train them as well and looking at writing funding bids and some of these skills are transferable as well because it's not just to do a PhD that you need to write a funding bid um, so there's all sorts of training and methods um, focus as well as um, the knowledge and the discipline focus um, and it's also something where we're trying to get students to feel confident in developing their own interests so that there's going to be quite a lot of support for them to kind of be picking the theorists or the, the group of theorists or the viewpoints that they want to explore in more detail and to be able to write their assessments about those ideas or those thinkers so we're trying to do something that's a mixture of guided and taught learning but with a lot of freedom for students to be able to choose what it is they want to do and to develop their work in their own way. It's also a chance for students to get stuck in and involved a bit more. I mean, all of our students, are, all our undergraduates are involved in our research community. That's something I'm really proud of at Brighton. Um, but for the, this MA, we're looking to get students involved in the um, uh, doctoral research that's going on at the moment with a research um, seminar that goes on every week and the master's students will also be taking part in that and seeing themselves as independent scholars in many ways. Yes, part of a wider group and able to benefit from those ideas, but able to get involved, think for themselves, critique texts for themselves and be part of that wider community with staff, with PhD students um, and contributing ideas to that questioning and maybe even critiquing some of the ideas that are being developed um, so it's really about that kind of interim step for students who are wanting to sound their own two feet a little bit more, study things for themselves, follow their own paths, but also still need that guidance and that teaching to help develop them. So we're trying to do those two things together. 
That leads me on to my, my next question, actually. So um, you said that students are heavily involved in the research community at, at Brighton. What sort of, um, what, what can students really get out of from their time at the university aside from sort of the bread and butter uh, of their course? And then, I, you know, you're, you're a, um, a postgraduate research supervisor as well. So um, you'd be supervising PhD students. I guess this is your opportunity as well to, to sell why it'd be a good idea to come to the University of Brighton to, uh, to do a PhD here. Great, so lots of things to think about there. So in terms of the research community, um, it really is a community, a community of scholars and curious people, if you like, um, who just are asking questions about why the world is the way it is and how we can change that um, and how we should, you know, should we change it? We don't just want change for change's sake. Um, what needs changing? What are people happy with? What are people not happy with? Sadly, people aren't happy with very much. Um, but what we've got at the moment is all the way through opportunities for students to get involved beyond just attending the lectures and seminars they have to attend. Um, so at the undergraduate level we've got a humanities society that students um, when they're I think in their second and third year have an opportunity to not just attend but to run. So it's a student run society. It's supported by staff so that the students don't feel they've kind of been abandoned um, but it's very much directed by students and they can choose which guests to invite. They invite speakers um, regularly to come and speak in the evenings um, and these are these are public lectures they get the friends you know there's no kind of closed membership and we have lots of people you know we've had um, packed lecture theatres um, with students inviting all sorts of people and they do invite academics that they're interested in hearing and listening to but they also invite um, activists um, poets politicians you know this is not just limited to academic work it's very much about how academic work has a partnership with the rest of the world and supports and is supported by things that are going on in the rest of the world um, so that's the, what our undergraduates run and those um, society events are not just for undergraduates staff attend them postgraduates attend them um, it is very much an event that is for the research community but directed by undergraduates and that's something that students will get involved in from their very first week at the university. Um, when we get to master's level I've just sort of talked about the fact that the master's students are also quite integrated in the wider research community and are taking part in doctoral seminars um, and also able to kind of run their own events um, and then we get to the PhD students and they are I mean, I, I certainly I'm not going to take any credit for the amazing stuff our PhD students do because they are just so dynamic. They run lots of events. They invite um, staff from other other academic uh, universities. They invite um, other speakers. They are running a journal at the moment. Um, they they organise um, collaborations with other universities, PhD students from other universities. Um, they honestly they they do everything. Um, that a PhD student might dream of doing. They're, they're quite incredible, a really incredible bunch. And it's really nice because every year we get new students come in but because they meet that kind of critical mass of the PhD students who are already here. Um, they get kind of, you know, um, a chance to get involved in that side of things and can then take it on themselves as the older students are graduating and leaving, going off to do other things. So that's really great. And that gives a whole sense of energy and enthusiasm and it kind of revitalizes the department every year as well when you've got these new ideas coming in. Um, and the staff 
run all sorts of talks. There's talks, I think nearly every week, there's people being invited. There's talks, the things going on in the evening, uh, lunchtimes, there's workshops. We've had um, cabinet ministers come. We've had um, our local MP, Caroline Lucas, will come and speak to our students. We have hustings for the local candidates before elections. Um, we, you know, there's so many events going on with people. We have um, government advisors have come and spoken and been questioned, um, particularly um, with regards to things like student fees, you know. Um, so there's some really good opportunities uh, that students have had to meet people, question them, and also then often just go for a drink with them afterwards and, and carry on the conversation in an informal way. And that, again, can be a really nice setting uh, for students to build their confidence and to really see themselves as thinkers and to see other people thinking, see thinking in action mm. and also to see the relevance. You know, sometimes people will say, well, why would I study philosophy? You know, how is that relevant to the world? Do I not need to study something that will get me a job? And, and, you know, I don't see any jobs other than in the university for a philosopher. And people don't always realise the relevance because when it comes to um, government policy, when it comes to... Um, medicine or you know health pandemics like we're facing today uh, when it comes to economic crises uh, when it comes to the use of artificial intelligence um, there's so many questions to be asked about the ethics the way in which we perhaps should be or shouldn't be using certain technologies where philosophy skills and knowledge deeper knowledge um, and awareness of context and, and politics are really important and that so it doesn't mean if you're going to study philosophy or politics that you then won't be able to get a job, say, working in a company um, with something to do with technology or something to do with medicine, because actually a lot of places need advisors and they want to be thinking about the ethical application of things that they're developing. And there's a growing need and a growing desire to employ people who come from a philosophy or politics background because of the skills that those people will have and the knowledge they have access to. Mm. Great. And we've had some fantastic opportunities in the past as well um, to, to study abroad, for example, prestigious universities like John Hopkins uh, in the USA. Um, as you said, like Cappy said, like, uh, you know, it's been a very rich events program, um, I guess, obviously impacted by um, COVID over the last uh, few months. But going forward, that would be fully stocked again i'm sure um uh, and i'm right we, we had professor judith butler here just um well i guess over the last the last few years someone that um you know absolute trailblazer in um third wave feminism on on gender and sex and um you've worked with her i think haven't you i mean quite the opportunity um there for you as well and and, and for the university yeah absolutely it is fantastic working at brighton because of the links that are being made across the, the, the world. And the collaboration with Judith comes about through the Critical Theory Consortium uh, because we teach critical theory and there's this network that's been set up now based at Berkeley um, that links together critical theory departments across the world. Uh, we have been working with her. And um, Wendy Brown as well, who's also at Berkeley, has come to Brighton and done workshops with our students. And Judith's been a couple of times for conferences and is actually part of a, an edited collection that's coming out in the next year um, with some other feminist scholars uh, based on a conference that happened at Brighton. And what was so lovely is the last conference we had with her, um, we were able to bring our undergraduate students as you know students who were um, in the university that day. They came along for the closing session and were able to ask questions. And that's what I really like. And that's something I'd never experienced at other universities before I came to Brighton, that just 
that breaking down of what sometimes seem to be quite big divides between say undergraduates and postgraduates and staff and staff activities that might be going on with with certain professors here and there and the undergraduates kind of not knowing about that whereas at Brighton everyone is involved the undergraduates will come and will come and speak to the guests um, that, that the staff might have um, and also I think when we do workshops the CAPI workshops um, we've had undergraduates coming along to the CAPI workshops and often asking the kind of killer question if you like of certain professors because you know sometimes when you're a doctoral student or when you're a, um, uh, uh, an academic yourself you get a certain way of thinking and you're kind of thinking this is the questions to ask in this way and that way and what's really great is when you get fresh voices coming into that and say well wait a minute why can't we talk about this um, there can just be these lovely moments where it kind of changes the shape of the debate and I think that's actually really important for knowledge to have people from different backgrounds and different levels um, all working together and that has created for me some of the most dynamic and inspiring academic moments I've ever experienced and that is because of that openness and that lack of hierarchy that as I say I've not experienced that at any other university and not just in the UK when I've kind of traveled around the world as well and a lot of people who come to our events at Brighton will comment on how how nice that is and how refreshing that is and it's something that's very distinctive I think about uh, the research culture that yeah. we're lucky enough to be able to work in. Yeah, there's some fantastic opportunities, and the courses sound um, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating to to study. Um, I'd like to get you some of your some of your thoughts on, I guess, some of, given some of your areas of expertise, just some some bits of big issues in politics at the moment. And uh, I'll tread carefully with the question so I don't put across my own views as well, so we can have we can try and put all this uh, conversation we've had just now into practice. Um, I, I, I guess just just uh, just on a few subjects really i mean firstly your thoughts on um populism in general um and the, the sort of the current trend over the recent years in world politics i mean we've seen brexit a trump presidency uh, loads more similar examples um where do you sort of see that trend going um with an academic hat on i i, I guess you know political movements and trends tend to go in waves anyway and you know there's a big election this year in in the u.s and you know, if Donald Trump loses that somehow, um, is, is that the beginning of the end for, potentially for this current trend of populism? Uh, that's a very interesting question. There's so much fascinating stuff written on populism at the moment. And interestingly enough, even when you're looking through the kind of um, academic commentary on populism, you find a lot of disagreement about what populism is, how long it's been around, who actually counts as a populist. But it seems to be a very useful word for generating debate, but I, I think it actually generates some really important debate. And that's the bit I value about all the, the talk about populism, because it makes us think about what democracy actually is today, the role of the people in democracy, um, and the, the types of things we do and we don't talk about when it comes to political debate. And some interesting um, arguments have been put forward by a professor called Yanis Stavrakakis. He was a guest at Brighton a few years ago um, for a workshop on populism and the situation in Greece. He's based at the University of Thessalonica, Thessaloniki. And um, he is working on populism in a slightly wider way. He's looking at the fact that some people will identify something called left populism, which is more what you might call a kind of move towards social democracy or at least people power and people's voice. And he's interested in the fact that often in the European debates, 
and not quite so often in, in the North American context, actually, but but quite often. Populism is almost a dirty word. It's an insult. It's it's people who are um, really kind of demagogues and, and trying to manipulate people, and it, it involves superficial politics. And actually, uh, Yanis's work is saying that popular the populism debate at the moment is perhaps more interesting for this division it's creating between populists and anti-populists so people who stand up against populism the sensible serious politicians um, because actually he says that's changed the way in which we talk about politics he points out that we far less he reckons will talk about left politics and right politics um, and we'll talk instead about populism and people who are holding out against populism and the the damaging point there, and this has been raised by other philosophers as well, people like Etienne Balabar, is that we then often will blur anything on the left and anything on the right if it's populist, because then it's like, oh, but that's all populism. And we're no longer looking at the distinction of what does it mean to be on the left? What does it mean to be on the right? And what does it mean to be in the centre? And of course, that is the stuff of politics, you know, the different distinctions and how we group those distinctions and are we grouping them correctly. And to now have this new debate about populism or, you know, let's stand up against populism and be sensible and rational, um, that has perhaps displaced the debate about what people think, how we think, and the types of policies we might want to put forward to change you know, the world. It becomes almost, you can put forward a policy as long as it's not populist. Um, and so when it comes to um, politics today, and, and that kind of, that level of the debate around populism and people think as um, politicians like Donald Trump, and, and also people, yeah, Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, we end up perhaps with a, a demonization of populism going on with, political leaders who people are opposed to or people are angry with and therefore populism becomes kind of just this type of thing that people want to get rid of and actually there are lots of questions to be asked about the word populism the root of the word populism the role of the people in it and why it is that the people of populism are bad people as opposed to the people of democracy who of course are the good people and I find that really interesting, you know, and who is it who gets to say that? Who is it who gets to say those are the wrong people or these are these people have been manipulated and they're not having they're not having the correct ideas. Um, and what we need to do is we need to teach people the, the right ideas and we need to teach people to be nice to each other. So I'm actually really interested in what the populism debate tells us about the state of politics today. When we're thinking about whether or not populism will be with us for a long time, it seems that a lot of people are benefiting a lot from writing about populism, and it's a very rich word to use. Similarly to democracy, you know, it can kind of mean lots of different things, so people want to write about it, everyone wants to own it, everyone wants to make it their own thing. So I don't think populism's going anywhere. I'm not sure if that means that there are going to be different trends and styles of leadership and politics going on or if populism is such a shifting word it will get reapplied to other things and changed around so i'm very very interested to see what will happen there are other trends as well though that are going on across europe and, and the us latin america and in asia yeah really interesting um i don't know where i'm going to go really with this next question really but um uk politics in general has been sort of fascinating i guess no matter what side of the divide you're on over the last I don't know, even if I just look at the Brexit vote just four years ago and the amount that's sort of changed since that time. I mean, the two main political parties we have in the UK are sort of coalitions in themselves anyway, and we've seen them both change quite a bit. Labour under Jeremy Corbyn are now almost like a completely different party again, feels like from the outside, um, just, a, just a couple of months in, the Conservatives 
you know, again, a different version of what they might have been, you know, 10 years ago. Um, I'm really interested to know what your thoughts are on the current state of UK politics and the sort of strengths of the parties, I guess. And um, the fact that they do keep changing so much, it's almost quite hard someone that might take a casual interest in politics and when we're, when we're trying to engage, engage them in a debate when it comes to moments like elections and stuff and the way that the the world's changed so much over this last five ten years means i think it's sometimes quite difficult for people to know what they're actually voting for yeah i think that's true um and i suppose it depends there are many different ways in which you can explain if that's what you want to do um the why people vote for who they vote for and whether or not there's a kind of sense of party loyalty so you know people who say well i've always been labor i'm going to vote labor and it doesn't matter who the leader is you know and therefore may well have voted for tony Blair, and may well have voted for the labor party under corbyn um, and not necessarily um wanted to change despite the fact that those two leaders and their policies may for some people seem very different um but actually i think when it comes to UK politics, what's quite fascinating are the differences, as you've already flagged, within the parties and the jostling that goes on within parties for what that party needs to stand for. And at the moment, even though there was a great deal of talk and, and commentary on Corbyn as a leader, as an individual, that the Corbyn kind of phenomenon that people talk about, even though he is no longer leading the Labour Party, um, there is, I think still a lot of conversation going on about what the Labour Party is today and who they're going to be. And perhaps in a way the media lost a little bit of sight from, of that, partly because of coronavirus and partly because Corbyn was kind of the figure around all of which all of this conversation was happening. And because Corbyn is no longer the leader, there's perhaps a sense of, oh, you know, are we still gonna have these conversations? Um, but there's a great deal of discussion at the moment about the types of policies that are possible thinkable, desirable um, in the Labour Party. Um, and that again is a rethinking of, or some people saying they don't want to rethink, left politics. But because there's not much space for people talking about left politics today, um, other than simply a kind of, often a caricatured version of what the left is, these debates I don't think are getting particularly well covered um, in, um, in the, the mainstream media. And I don't think, um, a lot of people have access to kind of all the different the different possibilities that are currently in the Labour Party and again we come to the Conservatives there's so much disagreement about what a Conservative is and what they stand for and there was a lot of turmoil moving from Theresa May to Boris Johnson and from Cameron before that who you know they're all different types of Conservative and what I think our students find really interesting is studying the different ways first of all the different ideas that the people in the party have whether that's the parliamentary party or whether that's the members or whether that's people who are just supporters of certain parties more widely um but also the looking at the kind of portrayal sometimes of the ideas in parties but often how that portrayal sometimes becomes much more personal and about leaders and about say the leadership's um dress sense or um you know their their style and whether or not they're a they're a convincing leader and sometimes that's a kind of deflection away from the wider debates about ideology, about manifestos, about principles and policies um, in the parties. And again, there are questions to be asked about why that happens, how that happens, and whether we think that that is something that should change. It's that role of power that I think when students are coming to us and saying, you know, particularly why should we possibly in politics together, the, the philosophy part of politics is how does the power work in politics? Who's in charge? Who's in charge of what we're doing today, what I'm doing today? Who's who's kind of um, shaping the way we think and what we say. And it, often it's not a who, 
even though we might phrase the question in that way, there are certain structures in society that make us or or make it easier for us to act or respond in certain ways. And the media, of course, is going to be part of one of those structures. Uh, and these are the questions that our students really love getting stuck into. The, the power questions, how power works, how you can resist that. Can you resist it? Is that just a, a fantasy that you hope you can? Um, and how we might be able to change things again if we want to for the better in future. Mm. It's been an unprecedented situation where, you know, not many situations where the entire world is uh, basically caught up in exactly the same thing. And there's no playbook either for any of these, um, uh, for any nations to actually be following to try and make sure they limit what, the, what what's going on. I just want to finish very quickly on um, that during this pandemic, you know, it's, 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 there's been a lot going on in this last few months. Um, you've also had the serious escalations of, you know, really key debates about equality and inequality. Um, the, the Black Lives Matter movement really took off a, a couple of months ago as we were recording this. Um, you know, recognised by politicians around the world, um, in rhetoric at least. Um, do you think it may be like enough is being done in terms of the, the action? And I'm also interested, um, while I was talking about that, about especially on both sides of the Atlantic, we've also seen criticism by senior uh, politicians um, about the actual protests themselves. And, and maybe that sort of changes the debate um, in the media and, and, it, and, it, and it means that maybe we're not seeing like the, the actual reason, you know, we're not tackling the actual issue of why, the, why these protests are happening in the first place. It then gets diverted into a politician maybe being dragged into something else. And, and um, so yeah, I'm just sort of wondering what your thoughts are on terms of sort of the rhetoric against the action um, around this debate. Yeah, I think you're right. There's been a lot of deflection um, when people are talking about injustices that they suffer and are continuing to suffer. Um, it's weird when then that, that starts being a conversation actually about an individual politician. Um, and then you think, well, people are going out and they are protesting and people are talking about this protest and they're stopping talking about this protest and talking about other issues again and nothing's being resolved. Um, I think there's an awful lot of um, hurt and pain and suffering going on. And these protests are simply beginning to make that clear to people. It's really easy to criticise people who are protesting. And I think it's really important, actually, particularly if it's something you have not experienced, to stop the criticism for a while and just listen. It's about people being able to live, people having food, people not being um, confronted with violence every day um, or risking, always feeling that threat, um, which is going to shape you. It's going to shape your personality. Um, these are the types of things, being able to live without fear. And we have to think about the structures in our society today, the poverty, the inequality, the injustice, that mean too many people around the whole world are living with fear. Claire, I can talk for ages about loads of different topics. Um, it's, it's been absolutely fascinating and I've got loads of notes that I haven't even got to yet. So um, but it's, been, it's been a fantastic insight just to see what it's like to, to study the course that we've been talking about um, at the university. Um, and that's just what we've been after. So um, it'd be a great course to, to great courses to, to study. Um, we end every podcast with something a lot more flippant. Uh, some quick fire questions just away from your work. So we're just going to fire through them, okay? Um, first one is, um, what advice would you give to your younger self? Okay, so I spend a lot of time talking to applicants coming to university. And so I often think of, you know, what would I do differently when I was trying to, to find a course to go to at university? And I think what's important today, particularly with the funding regime and fees, um, is to make sure that you are happy with 
what you're going to study. And that means not rushing into it because often there's this great feeling of got to go to university straight away. And actually if it takes that little bit longer to find the course where you're going to be happy and the thing that you want to study and ask about, that's really important. And another part of that is that in the, the urgent dash to get qualifications and then get out in the world and, and I think um, we're often taking our eye off the content of what we're studying. And I think for students who want to um, really benefit from undergraduate degree and if relevant, the master's degree, or if they want to do a PhD, then it's about finding the right thing that you're gonna be enthusiastic and passionate about for three years. And that that passion is gonna carry you through those three years, even if, um, you know, you're getting tired or you're getting um, stressed about things or whatever as you get to like, your third year or if, you know, um, you're having to work alongside, which lots of students do nowadays, you want to know you're still going to have the passion to study and to go to your lectures and enjoy that. And however much your lecturers want to whip that up in you, you've got to have that interest there to start with. So I would say pick the subject that you want to do, because when it comes to turning that into employment, there are so many conversion courses you can do if you say you want to then become a lawyer but you haven't done a law undergraduate degree that's fine because you can do a conversion course if you want to teach you can do a, a pgce so there's all sorts of things you can do after your undergraduate degree to then tailor you into the job you want to do it's not always about finding the degree that is the job it's about finding the degree that will give you the skills that you need to be able to work and also to be able to live in the complex and sometimes slightly depressing world that we live in today, but to feel optimistic about it, the courses that will give you optimism and empower you to feel that you're in control when you come out the other side of your degree. So take time when you're thinking about getting to university um, and make sure that you, you've got a course at a university you're happy with, go and visit, go and soak up the atmosphere if possible. If not possible, take, you know, take advantage of online things that are going on at the moment because of coronavirus. And, make sure that it's something that you're passionate about and you're going to love and you're not doing it for someone else or doing it to please other people you're doing what's right for you it's your decision it's a big decision take your time and get it right great advice um if you could pick any other subject to study at the university of brighton you don't have to necessarily have the expertise or talent to to do it but what would it be i think that's such a big question i mean what i'd love is as a member of staff at university of brighton i'd really love it if i could do all of the so, you know work my way around because what I love about this university is whenever I meet staff from other departments they're really enthusiastic about their subject you know and I'll talk to them five minutes over coffee in the queue um, in the cafe and I'm suddenly thinking oh, I want to study what you do um, there's so much passion knowledge and enthusiasm at the university and a great love of studying and a great love of ideas and how we can apply those ideas and make them relevant that I kind of you know I don't want to get out of this by not making a decision but I also I've probably changed my mind you know I say one thing today one thing tomorrow because of the different people I've met and the people I'm talking to so it's all about the fact that you know everyone at the University of Brighton is very enthusiastic very inspiring and there's so much that goes on there so yeah everything if I could if you could give me the time um, can you pick a favourite place in Sussex? So if there's a student maybe thinking about coming here, you know, where, would, where should they go? Brighton. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's really dynamic. All of our students who come to Brighton from further afield, that the majority of students don't, don't come from initially, they love it. There's so much to do, so much to see. It's a great base if you then want to go off and explore places. There's trains, you know, trains up to London. For those students who don't come from London, and London is a novelty, um, if students want to go up... Um, 
and explore London for the day, but there's the downs, there's the sea, there's the beach, there's just standing by the pier um, and watching the starlings in the evening. It's just, it can be quite magical. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful place to study. I'm very jealous of all the undergraduates who come there, um, all sort of starry-eyed, because it's just wonderful. And um, all of our students have a great time, so definitely Brighton. Um, final few, can you tell us something interesting about you, which a lot of people may not know? I don't find myself that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So um, I, I came to study politics initially because I'd done a history A-level and I was really interested in, I'd done kind of um, nearly contemporary history, really. It was so, so recent. Um, lots of stuff to do with 19th century and 20th century political manoeuvrings. Um, the um, different public health acts um, it being introduced in the UK, trying to make people's lives better, the different um, voting acts with different people um, being allowed to vote for the first time. And it always strikes me, it shocks me when we talk about democracy as something that, that we're so used to and bored with now. It always strikes me how recent it actually is. Um, and the fact that, that women could only vote, um, you know, very, very recently, really, if you think of the history of the world, the fact that all people um, over the age of 18 even could vote um, in the UK and other European um, countries was was startlingly recent when we then say democracy is something we're all used to and, and bored with so when I came to study politics I was thinking about that initially from a history point of view and learning all the different sort of historical changes that had happened and then looking at all the international relations stuff that had gone on with um, the, the different world wars, um, following the Second World War, the Cold War, the um, power play, the um, quite scary different way, uh, different sort of tensions in the world, different flashpoints, if you like, during the Cold War. Um, the fact that, you know, in, in seconds, things could have gone in a vastly different way. Um, the ways in which different areas of the world were drawn into those developments differently and suffered the effects um, and that certain populations were more, more um, protected and other populations were more exposed to brutalities and inequalities. And then the post-Cold War um, changes across Europe, Russia in particular, I remember um, studying, um, but the impact that then had on the rest of the world, again, just, just incredible and it was through that that I started to think well although the history is really inspiring me the history is inspiring me because of the political parts of it the, the power play the negotiation the rhetoric versus what was actually going on the role of the media in stirring up certain tensions um, all of that broad area and then also that the, the ethical question something we always focus on at Brighton particularly undergraduate degree PPE philosophy politics and ethics which is a, a wee bit unusual because we want students to not just be saying what happened how did it happen and what are the ideas behind it but should it have happened what would have happened or should have happened differently and what should happen differently in the future so we're always trying to link those three and we're not trying to ever study them separately and for me those three things emerged almost organically out of my interest initially in history at a level and then coming to politics undergraduate there you go you've demonstrated your own advice to yourself there the degree is not necessarily what the job becomes and finally if you could pick, <laughs> if you could pick three people to host for a dinner party past or present um who might they be and why i think it would just have to be a massive party and it wouldn't be three people it would be everyone everyone that i work with everyone that i um have got links with through our international network we've got this populism network we've got theory network um it would be all of them in one room we've been doing this 
transnational reading group recently at Brighton where with coronavirus we couldn't keep our reading group going every week that was meeting in person and so instead we opened it up we had the students coming and we had the staff coming who always come but we also opened it up to all other scholars and activists in our network and because they were in lockdown too bizarrely like all around the world lots of people were able to attend and it was fantastic so I think it would be a party with all of those people right now it would possibly be a party to celebrate the fact that we've um, got this far um, through the lockdown um, and I don't think we've gone too crazy as a result but it's, it's been tough <laughs> Claire, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you coming on. It's been great. Thank you very much. That's it for this week's podcast. Remember, you can listen back through our previous episodes. There's all kinds of subjects covered in our back catalogue. Please do share, subscribe, retweet. Thanks for listening.